I realised after seven years that I'd been treading water. And I hadn't gained seven years of experience. I probably gained about three. And then I had the fourth year, four repetitions of the same year over and over again. If the people in the business enjoy being there, they're happy, they feel valued, and they're trained properly, and we spend time and they have kind of good balance in their life, well, of course, that's gonna translate into the best possible customer experience we can have. Of course, in the beginning, it was really hard. Like, we got a lot of critique for starting to roast very light, and this didn't taste like coffee, and so on. But then you start to gain followers, and very loyal customers. Hi, welcome to the Fifth Wave Podcast. I'm Jeffrey Young, Editor-in-Chief of Coffee Business Magazine, Fifth Wave. Every other week, we listen to inspiration from key leaders who are carving out a roadmap of success across the world of coffee. Today, we're going to be looking at the careers of three highly successful coffee entrepreneurs to learn their stories and the secrets of their success. We're going to hear from Tim Wendelbo, founder of the Oslo-based coffee roastery that exemplifies the Nordic specialty coffee movement. We'll hear from Elaine Swift, regional director of UCC, whose career has spanned three decades in the hospitality industry. But first up, we're talking with Ross Quayle. Hailing from Melbourne, Ross most famously helped Gross and Alley. He joined the small but iconic cafe when it was serving brunches and roasting only 100 kilograms a week. But after buying into the business, he helped it to grow into one of Australia's largest specialty coffee roasters, roasting up to 10 tonnes of coffee a week. While Ross's career has taken many fascinating twists and turns, one thing remains a constant, a burning drive for continuous personal growth. A big welcome here to Ross Quayle, who's sales director for Hembro, South Asia and Australia, based in Melbourne, and a big welcome. Thank you so much, Jeff. It'd be great to get a little bit of background on your career in coffee, Ross. Well, I went to school in uh, Geelong, about an hour out of Melbourne, and I had no idea what I wanted to do when I was finishing year 12. And then I took uh, the chance to take a degree at RMIT in Melbourne, and I did applied science in hospitality management. And really from there, I, I got into coffee. And then one day in my, probably towards the, the end of my degree, and I was just finishing up, I overheard a conversation where there was a, a roaster that was at a place not far from where I lived who told his uh, boss that he could, you know, go and shove it and that they'd, they'd watch this coffee roaster walk out. And I'd been a barista at the time and I, I'd overheard the conversation. I said to these people, whereabouts was this? And they told me where. And so I finished my shift and then I jumped on a train and I went over there and I found this place called The Coffee Company in Carlisle Street in Balaclava. And I knocked on the door and I said, I heard you might need a coffee roaster. I'll I'll work for a couple of weeks for free, and if you like me, keep me on. And that was the beginning. I spent probably six or seven years there. In that time, I got involved in some coffee judging and began my journey with the Australian Specialty Coffee Association. I then went over to another company called Jasper Coffee, just at, I guess, as the, the start of the fair trade movement, and that was in, I think, 2000, 2001. Back then, you might go to a cafe, but you never saw coffee industry being something of a, of a legitimate career. But, but at that point, there were the beginnings of, of it being possible that you could stay in this industry. And so 
I kept going with it. Jasper Coffee was another sort of four years or so where I was roasting. And then I was getting into sales because a lot of the time there was a disconnection between those that were selling the coffee and those that actually understood and prepared the coffee. So uh, I found a great little uh, niche for myself in being able to speak authentically about coffee as a coffee judge, but also as a coffee roaster, and then having a strong background as a barista. That lent itself to me being able to walk into a cafe and begin to prepare a coffee for somebody, not just sell it, but help them experience it. I'm skipping forward again. Worked part-time for Salvatore Malatesta at St. Ali in Sensory Lab, just as Sensory Lab was starting out. And then I just settled in. And after a little while, I, I looked at the business and I thought, well, there's nothing wrong with this business. It's, it's a new business and I can exert a, an influence over it. And I really love what I'm doing. So, you know, I tapped the parents on the back and said, can I take a loan? And I uh, knocked on the door and I said to Sal, look, you know, I'd like to buy in. And I bought in. And then that was the start of a, a wonderful eight years that were some of the hardest that I've ever worked, but also certainly set me up with a great appreciation for, I guess, looking for the opportunities in coffee. With Sensory Lab, there was a business that grew from back then about 100 kilos a week up to, I think, in excess of 10 tons a week. And I think it gave me the confidence to be able to know that with the right drive, specialty coffee can move into the broader market and not just be focused on high-end cafes. Then coming more recently, I'd spent a lot of time with um, St. Alien Sensory Lab and I was looking for a change. So I sold my shares. I had an opportunity to work with Slayer Espresso as the Asia Pacific sales director. And then more recently, I had a tap on the shoulder from Hemro who said to me, look, you know, we like what you're doing. Would you consider doing what you're doing with us? Fantastic. You know, where do you think careers are going in coffee, you know, currently for, you know, obviously, you know, leaving aside the, the difficult times that we've got right now, but what, what are careers going to look like in coffee going forward? I think what's irked me a lot is that people have come into the coffee industry only as a means to support themselves before they go on to their other careers. But what I hope is that, with the evolution of coffee businesses, there are baristas that were head baristas that were some of the best bars in Melbourne that knew everything. They know their stuff. They know how to make coffee. They know how long it takes to make it. They understand costs and, and a lot of other things. And now these baristas are no longer in their 20s. They're in their 30s. They're starting to get partners and settle down and look to buy a house. And at the same time that they want to get off bar, but they want to still be involved in the industry. And because the larger end of town, you know, your, your larger scale roasters now want to remain in contact with specialty and to be almost predict how to be there too and land at the right position. So I think the evolution of what we've got in the next sort of five years is those that have the wherewithal to either utilize their education engage in some further education, being some post-grad or some more business-related skills, will be able to take the skills that they've learnt and take their networks and really become a really valuable part of the organisations of the future with coffee. So you, you've done the entrepreneur, you've done the corporate. Would you ever see yourself you know, starting another business, starting something new? For me, it would be wonderful if I have the wherewithal and the ability to reach a, you know, CSO level within Hemro. 
in order to carry myself through my late 40s, early 50s, having a strong international exposure to a corporate world that exists with coffee and much more of a global outlook, I think that's going to position me much better that when I do position myself, should something arrive in the future, that I've got a very good understanding of how to work within the global coffee economy because there's a connectivity that exists now that has never been there. If you have a, a success within social media and a brand and you, you compete at a competition or otherwise, you can be catapulted to somewhere very, very different very, very quickly. But if you don't have an awareness of those markets and you don't have an awareness of what opportunity presents in those different markets culturally and, and otherwise, you really miss the boat. So if you were looking back at your career, more than 20-year career in this industry, is there anything you would have done earlier? Absolutely. At the early stages, I think I was a great employee because I was incredibly loyal to businesses. But in some instances, when I reflected, in particular in one of my first jobs, I realized after seven years that I'd been treading water and I hadn't gained seven years of experience. I'd probably gained about three and then I had the fourth year for repetitions of the same year over and over again. I don't really mind about failure. Failure is fantastic. And any entrepreneur who are far more skilled than myself would tell you that that's where they had their greatest learnings. But my greatest learnings have really been about reflecting on when I'm stationary. Thanks very much, Ross. That was absolutely wonderful. My absolute pleasure, Jeff. Okay, next up, we're talking with Elaine Swift. I've known Elaine for many years. She is one of the most influential women in the European coffee industry. Elaine began her career in the hotel industry in the mid-80s before jumping into the coffee sector in the early 90s with Bewley's, an Irish roaster expanding in the UK. Things got really interesting in the mid-90s when Elaine joined George Miller at First Choice Coffee. And together, they created what was a national network of equipment, distribution, servicing, looking after businesses the likes of McDonald's. This is anecdote and on the side now, but I remember George Miller phoning me up in about 2001 when Allegra was a very small business. And he says, I want to have a meeting with you. You know, I want to see what you guys do. And I had no clue who the guy was. When he came to our offices at the time in Finchley Road, our young, very small business, and he said, you guys know nothing about the coffee industry because you don't even know who I am. And that was an, an awakening for me, but they were out there doing stuff in the coffee industry, really, really laying the tracks for office coffee for many, many chains, especially McDonald's, to really execute a big coffee program all across the UK and ultimately across the whole of Europe. Today, Elaine runs a business with over 500 employees, you know, UCC Europe provides a one-stop shop, a total solution, enabling them to service some of the biggest coffee networks across Europe. Delighted to be here today with Elaine Swift. Good morning, Jeffrey. When you joined First Choice Coffee, it was a very small business and it grew very rapidly. Um, what if you just share with our audience the, the rapid rise of First Choice Coffee? 
Yeah, so George Miller um, started First Choice in 87. Um, actually, uh, it was a recession and an aunt had left him some money and there was a bit of a restructure at Autobar and he decided to go it alone. And I think it was tough for George in the early days, but by the time I had bumped into him, he'd established a really kind of solid foundation. He had um, operated from a small chapel in Markgate and he was, I think, seven full-time people, including him himself and I think I was number eight and I joined in February 1996. So when I joined in 96 we were turning over around 700,000. The business was mainly independent coffee bars, restaurants. So you know there were a few changes to the business along the way but if you look at that business that back in 1996 was doing less than a million it's doing 125 million today you know, I think one of the big opportunities for us, two things really, the launch of black and white fully automatic uh, coffee machines from Thermoplan, which really allowed the authentic espresso-based drinks at the touch of a button. And then, of course, don't forget Starbucks coming to the UK and launching in Eldon Street near Liverpool Street Station, I believe was the first one. And, you know, that really was the start of a major transformation in coffee. Yeah. So what would you put down the success of that growth? How did I do it? Well, the first thing is I definitely didn't do it on my own. And I think surrounding oneself with great like-minded people is definitely one of the keys to success. And when I say people, of course, we really split that into three categories. Of course, there's um, the team that, that you become part of and you spend a lot of time with. There's the supply partners, which are equally as important. And then, of course, the ultimate, um, which are, are the customers and building relationships and really taking care of these relationships and working with these people to add value, help learn, listen sometimes, understand and create excitement as well. And also make sure that everybody knows where we're going and what we're trying to achieve. And I think then everybody together ends up with, with a chance of getting there. So I think the people piece is really, really important. And then, of course, you've got to have a good understanding of, of the industry that you're in. You know, that's our coffee industry. What's going on? You know, what are consumers doing? You know, what do our customers need? And being able to really sell the solution, which ties back to our total coffee solution and not just a product. And really get under the skin and partner with customers to understand how, what are their objectives and what can we really do to help them deliver. And then, of course, for that, it's really important to have a really solid contact strategy. So whether it's from, you know, the board or the CEO of our customers, right down to, you know, the team's whether they're serving or making coffee and all the different functions of the business, whether it be marketing, category, HR from a training perspective. So all of these elements are really key. And then, of course, you know, we do have to have the right products and machines and you can't stand still. We've constantly got to be looking at where, where the industry is going based on that understanding of what's happening in coffee and then making sure that we have the right products products and machines that are going to be relevant and will allow us to keep growing and keep retaining the customers we have 
and obviously building new ones. And then, of course, you know, growth does doesn't happen. You have to target it. You've got to know who do we want to play with as well as who do we not want to play with. And I think that's equally as important. So with our account-based marketing approach, where we really target the customers that we want to really deal with next. And I know probably the next thing will be, what were the big moments? What are we proud about? And I think I've already mentioned really having some of the best people in the coffee industry in our team is really, really something to be proud of. And it's also fun and enjoyable. But I think also, if you look at some of the customers that we deal with in the UK, some big operators and retailers, the likes of McDonald's, of Greg's, Hotel Chocolat, M&S, Waitrose, the list goes on, as well as many, many, many small individual um, independent customers, as well as some of the brands like the Gordon Ramsay restaurants of this world. You know, we're so proud and so fortunate to be able to really partner big and small customers have as much passion for coffee as we do and coffee is a very very important part of their business whether it be from a finance profitability perspective or this real link that I believe exists between consumers and coffee which is really really important. Now you're known as a no-nonsense business person very driven ambitious tough how would you describe your own management style? Well, I don't really see myself as a manager. A leadership style. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. My management (laughs) skills are probably not that great, Jeff. Um, But yeah, leadership, I think. Look, at the end of the day, is it leadership? It's basically about respecting and treating other people how you'd like to be treated yourself, being inspirational, being confident, really being able to go on that journey and develop people and people really feel that they can follow you and that they're going somewhere. So it's creating an environment or a vision or a plan that people can really follow. And when times are good and there's things to celebrate, have fun, celebrate hard. And even if it's small things, but equally when times are tough or we've got challenges, or we've made mistakes, things go wrong, come together, solve them together, still take care of everyone. And I think be prepared to get your sleeves rolled up. And I think that's um, really important. And don't expect anybody to do anything you literally would not do yourself. So if one of my team is an example, I've got a tough customer negotiation or meeting to go to, they know they will go in there and I will absolutely back them up. I'm not going to send them in to do something that I wouldn't be prepared to do myself or be prepared to go in after them and still deliver the same message. One of the other things from leadership and, and management, Jeff, is... When the business was small, I was able to have more control of all the elements of the business and the customers than, of course, you are when the business is much bigger. And one of the things that we very consciously did was how are we going to make sure that we can personally, either me as an individual or my kind of senior team, take care of everything and particularly the customer and the customer experience. And actually, we found them together, it was quite simple, because if the people in the business enjoy being there, they're happy, they feel valued, and they're trained properly, and we spend time and they have kind of good balance in their life, 
Well, of course, that's going to translate into the best possible customer experience we can have. Now, given all your successes, is, is there anything that you look back and you go, do you know what? I wish I might have done that thing differently. Yeah, I think probably two things. I think when we put uh, the roastery, a gala coffee and first choice coffee together, the first choice business up to then was very much a food service away from home business. And of course, because Gala had retail customers, the likes of Tesco at that time, we entered into the world of retail. And I didn't know a lot about retail. And when I rocked up to have my first few meetings with Tesco, which were very memorable, I realised pretty quick that I needed somebody um, who knew a lot more about retail than me. And actually, that was when I bumped into my now husband, Mr. Marcus Swift. So that was a good experience for a number of reasons. But what Marcus brought to the business was proper background in retail. And that's when really we introduced category to the business. And we really started getting category strategy, insight, which you know all about, Jeff, you know, real actionable insight. And this um, was mainly obviously for retail. So really understanding the fixture, the consumer, how does that drive what's on the fixture and ultimately category growth from sales? However, what we did is we took an element of that category approach and we applied it to the business away from home. And I genuinely think if we'd had an understanding of that or applied to that much earlier on and 2010, then really I think the business could have, have grown much quicker. Elaine, thanks for coming on Fifth Wave today. Jeff, thank you. Finally, we're bringing this episode home with Tim Wendelbow. Tim's fame in coffee began when he won the World Barista Championships in 2004. Today, he's well known for his light roasting style, his commitment to supply chain transparency, and sourcing some of the highest quality Arabica coffees in the world. During this interview, we hear how Tim's obsession with coffee quality and his unrelenting desire to learn take him far away from the cozy Oslo Cafe and land him deep into the coffee fields of Latin America. So welcome, Tim. Thank you. Your name is synonymous, I think, with the Nordic coffee experience that really began a total revolution in coffee. I'd love to hear your early journey. Where did it all begin? I was done with the high school in Norway. In, this was in 1998. At that time, all the boys had to go to the military and I didn't really want to go to the military. And I also didn't want to study in the university because I was kind of tired of school. I passed a cafe that were looking for people uh, and I got a job in that cafe and that turned out to be one of the first kind of new modern coffee shops in Oslo. We were only two people working full time and both of us started at the same day. So nobody in the store actually knew anything about making coffee. We got like a three hour crash course in coffee, which covered anything from green coffee to a little bit of roasting. And, and then at the end, we kind of learned how to make espresso, the basics. But the day after I was, you know, first shift in the store. <laughs> wow. You know, when a customer came and ordered a, like a mochaccino, I didn't really know what it was. So I had to ask the customer and the customer said, well, I don't know. I think it's with chocolates. <laughs> 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 That's real precision, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it's part of my personality that I really dislike doing stuff that I don't know how to do. So... I very quickly started trying to search for information where I could learn how to make better drinks, 
quickly after, it was like six months after, the owner asked me if I wanted to compete in a barista competition. So I competed and I did not terrible. I didn't come uh, top three or anything, but it was very good motivation because the judges were kind of giving me a very good feedback. And then I decided to try again the following year and, and started training for that. It didn't take very long either until I started running that coffee shop that I started in. And after a few years, I was kind of head of quality control and training for six coffee shops in Oslo. But after a couple of years, when I started doing really well in the barista competitions, I was so kind of sucked into this coffee world that I, I started thinking, you know, maybe I can actually open my own place. And then after winning the world championship in 2004, of course, I got a lot of opportunities to travel and, and learn and quickly understood that I had to leave the company I was working for and, and do something on my own because I felt like I was held back a little bit. Not because the owner did it on purpose, it was just the day-to-day -day running of that company kind of took all my time and I didn't have time to develop myself. Having said that, I also really dislike working for other people. <laughs> I, I like to make my own decisions. I think the, the main difference is that instead of trying to make a format that should work for six stores, uh, where you have you know 80 employees that you need to train in a system that works to kind of create a, a, an even standard of quality for all stores, going from six stores to just running one store in a roastery is you feel a lot more flexible. You can change things overnight. It doesn't take a lot of time to train people. You're just trying to please yourself and push coffee forward in the way that I personally would like to see it go instead of trying to cover any customer needs. Of course, in the beginning, it was really hard. Like We got a lot of critique for starting to roast very light and this didn't taste like coffee and so on. But then you start to gain followers and very loyal customers. What's the secret to you know, having great people in your business. It's easy to teach anyone the skill of making coffee in our coffee shop because it's easy to make coffee in our coffee shop. The machines are tuned, you know, we have routines to check quality all the time. But what is very, very difficult is to train people in customer service. If they don't have that kind of interest in helping people, it's really difficult, you know. You need to kind of have that intuition already built in, I think. I've been an employee for many years as well and I know how demotivating it can be if your salary is a little bit too low or if, you know, the working environment is not great. So we're trying to kind of nourish that to help people stay. And then also it's about stimulating people and helping them learn more and, and progress. Uh, if they stagnate, they quickly get tired and, and leave the company. What was the original plan and how has that original plan worked out compared to where you are now? What I kind of didn't expect when I started was that I would focus so much on traveling to farms and working much, much closer with farmers. I didn't really know how coffee trade worked at all. And then I realized if I want to have a consistent high quality, I need to visit the farmers and work together with them in order to make that happen. <laughs> when did your first farm experience happen? And when did it actually, do you feel that became one of your most important pasts in your career currently? I think my first origin trip where I, I realized that I had to start working more directly with farmers was in Kenya and I was early 2008. 
And I went because we had bought some Kenyan coffee. And then we received news, you know, six months later that the farmers hadn't gotten paid yet, which was terrible, you know. I was a believer of transparency and all these kind of things. But then I realized, you know, there's nothing transparent about my business model. So I also decided to go to, to Honduras to visit the farmer that I had bought coffee from there and um, quickly understood that it was probably more a coincidence that his coffee was good than anything else because his setup was very, very primitive. For instance, the, the fermentation tanks where you ferment coffee was very dirty. They were made out of wood. And I was spending so much time in my own store trying to be precise about roasting and brewing and all these kind of things. And then I looked at the raw material and, and there was nothing precise about it. So that's kind of uh, what triggered my interest in, in working more closely with farmers. If we're talking careers in coffee, careers on the farm, careers... At Origin, there are a lot of views out there that coffee isn't a viable career for many people. What do you feel about the prospects of jobs and careers at Origin? Well, this is a very complicated uh, topic because if you know what you're doing, there are opportunities. For most farmers, that's not the case. And most farmers in the world sell cheap coffee to the main market for less than the cost of producing it. <laughs> So, you know, that's not encouraging for anyone to continue with coffee. And then you have the more niche uh, world that we are in. If you have access to good seeds, you have uh, land with good potential, meaning it has good altitude and climate. You have some know-how or access to know-how. You can be capable of producing a high-quality coffee, but it doesn't mean that you're capable of selling that high-quality coffee for a sustainable price. So you kind of need to have a network as well. It's difficult. Thank you for listening. We hope you got as much out of this as we did. If you have any feedback, we'd love to hear your thoughts at worldcoffeeportal slash fifth wave. This podcast was recorded in the one and only Serenipity Studios in glorious Camden, North London. It was produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, the World Coffee Portal team, James Harper of Filter Productions, and then sound engineering by Chris Brister. And now we'll leave you with a song from LA artist Trevor Wesley, a participant of the Coffee Music Project, Buzzed. We'll leave you buzzing for the rest of the week. Stay safe and stay caffeinated. I'm buzzed even more, high as a kite, turning darkness to light. I'll be high my whole life, so say what you will. Life itself is a thrill. You can't bring me down. Stuck in the zone, I made it my home It's a blessing, I do what I want I'm a savant, I'm nonchalant Always progressing, never stressing Keeping my enemies close, keep them guessing Anytime I come around I'm buzzed in the morning I'm buzzed, I'm buzzed in the evening I'm buzzed, I'm buzzed, buzzed in the afternoon I'm buzzed all day long in my car I'm buzzed at the grocery store One thing's for sure I'm buzzed all day long All day long Buzz all day All day long I'm high on life I'm buzzed
never salty Why you gotta be a box of cheeses? When life is a bitch Just toggle the switch and move the pieces Know what perfect pieces I ain't people pleasing Anytime I come around I'll stay high My whole life You'll catch a contact Anytime I pass by I'll stay high My whole life You'll catch a contact Anytime I pass by I'm buzzed in the morning in the evening I'm buzzed, I'm buzzed, buzzed yeah. in the afternoon I'm buzzed, I'm buzzed all day long all day long I'm buzzed at the house I'm buzzed, I'm buzzed in my car I'm buzzed, I'm buzzed yeah. at the grocery store one thing's for sure I'm buzzed all day 